I'm Alex Trepchinski. I'm Angie Check. I'm Barbara Stewart. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I'm Marin Green. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Valerie Jacobson. And this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I have a very, very, very special episode today. I get to interview a new friend of mine, Kelly Brogan, MD. We got connected through the grapevine because we're both doing very similar work. Kelly's a psychiatrist. She has an incredible pedigree, you know, some Ivy League training behind this lady, and uh, decided, despite her training and being born within that system, to step out of the system, very much like I did. And we're not talking about burning things down. We're just going to build a life raft. Because in her world, as a psychiatrist, she um, started really digging into the the literature around the chemical deficiency hypothesis of mental illness, right? Which says that, oh, you don't have enough serotonin, so let's give you a medication that inhibits the reuptake of serotonin in your neuronal synapses, and that's going to fix the problem, right? That's, That's how the SSRI revolution happened with fluoxetine back in the 80s. As we start to pontificate on how to fix things, right? We love to fix everything. We tend to look at the body as the sum of parts, the brain and the body and the brain-body connection and this and that, but it's incomplete because if it was just a, a chemical insufficiency or deficiency, I should say, then these medications would work. But not only do they not work, but they have all these other profound detrimental impacts on the body. They impact your gut microbiome. They impact your nutrient uh, levels within your blood and in your tissues. and they make you wholly dependent on the medication. So when you take a person off of this med and their depression comes back, we call that a relapse. But really, Kelly would argue, and she has a lot of evidence in her books to support this, that you're actually experiencing withdrawal. So it takes a very, very courageous person. And Kelly Brogan is, is, uh, has been through the ringer for a lot of things that she's put out in the past. But when you really, really understand what she's saying, you have to wonder, am I confronted by what she's saying or am I confronted because she's holding the mirror up and I just don't like the image? And that's really, really tricky. And I know I probably will get some hate mail for that. But the reality is you have full control over your domain and what happens to you. And that's a good thing. That's empowering. That's inspiring. That's juicy. That makes life worth living. Versus, oh, well, this is out of my control. I just have to wait until they come out with a new you know, drug on the market that's going make, to you know, make me feel better. So that while that seems easier, if you're actually producing other problems, sort of like cutting off the the head of the hydra, right? Two new heads emerge. If you can't actually sit with what is going on here, do I have any control over this? My reaction to this, is this victimhood serving me or can I finally shed it and move on through the, the rebirth canal, as Kelly puts it, in order to, you know, to establish myself anew? So I love this conversation with her. Um, it's wide ranging. We're going to have to do a part two because I didn't even get nearly all of my questions answered. But Kelly is promoting a program. I'm helping her promote it. It's called her Vital Mind Reset Program. And uh, the way she describes it is that uh, you can heal anxiety, depression, stress. You don't need drugs. You just need a supportive online program. And so she's put together this 30-day program. It's launching this week. She is hoping that by taking these 30 days in earnest, you'll find you've got better energy levels, you'll be less fearful, your mood will be more stable, 
you're going to have better relationships, your health is going to improve in way more ways than one. And um, you can find all of the details at belovedholistics.com slash shop. And at the very bottom, you'll see a link, a unique link just for me, Nathan Riley. And um, you can sign up there. And uh, I, I've, I feel very, very confident in promoting this program because I've talked to people who've worked with Kelly and they are like, this is the real deal. This is lasting change. This is what I've been looking for for all this time. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the one and only Kelly Brogan, MD. Kelly, I am fanboying right now. I discovered your books when I was in residency. I'm an OBGYN, of course, as you know. I also then went on to hospice and palliative care. So I do birth and death. And from a very, very early time in my training, which I think everybody can relate back to residency, is the either make or break point as to whether or not you're in. And people like me and you, we decided probably, I even earlier than that decided this is pretty weird. This isn't what I expected. And I found your book. I think I found it through Joe Rogan. Uh, on his podcast years ago, right? And you were talking about birth control pills, and it got me onto this like rabbit hole of an adventure. So for me to be sitting with you today and getting to know you personally is like very near and dear. So thank you so much for coming. As it always is, you feel so familiar to me. So it's a pleasure. Really. Right on. Yeah. Cut from the same cloth in some way. Yeah. <laughs> I know you've done a lot of interviews. You've talked a lot about the role of, for lack of better terms, lifestyle on psychiatric illness. I'm using air quotes on my end because people can't see that. And to kind of summarize that so that you don't have to go into that whole thing, because I got so many other things I want to talk to you about. Back in the 80s, we designed our first SSRI. I believe it was fluoxetine. Am I correct in that? That's my, yeah, understanding. 82, 83, somewhere in there. And it was uh, sort of an answer to, it it was uh, answering the call of the, the chemical deficiency hypothesis of mental illness. Again, I'm using air quotes. And since then, we haven't seen much benefit. If anything, we've seen a lot of detriment from a lot of these medications, which you kind of lump together, if I, if I understand, into this sort of antipsychotic pharmaceutical category. But that's the antidepressants, anti-anxiety, uh, the anxiolytics like the benzodiazepines. We're looking at our antipsychotics, which have now been used for everything from full-blown psychotic breaks to sleep. And so we're using these medicines, even in my world in palliative care, oh, especially in my world in palliative care, we're using a ton of these medicines. We're not seeing much benefit. And then you add on to that NSAIDs, PPIs, birth control pills, being born by C-section, not being breastfed. You're getting this crazy dysregulation of the immune system since 80% lives in the gut, within gut-associated lymphatic tissue. And we're seeing these downstream consequences of these medications. And when people come, so, so maybe some short-term gain through placebo effect, and perhaps some long-term gain for some people, but the vast majority of people try to come off of these and then the doctor says something like, oh, look, look how sick you are. You better get back on those. And the journey continues versus what I think you and I hold so near and dear is that you come off of that. And now you're actually withdrawing from these incredibly toxic, very challenging medications for the nervous system and the body. And so your theory that you outline in your, in your book is really related to the inflammatory hypothesis uh, within the brain and the nervous system as a perhaps alternative to the chemical deficiency hypothesis. So I'll stop there. Anything you wanted to add or correct me on there? Because I summarized about eight chapters of your book just now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it sounds right. I mean, I'm just reflecting. I remember that there were like 40,000 adverse events related to Prozac, like in the first decade after it came out, right? So like 
now you look at even newer pharmaceutical products on the market and there's like a similar pattern. And so if you don't know about this kind of approach to what we think of as the bona fide, you know, FDA approved seal, this is okay for you to help yourself with, then you might not be aware that there's, there's not actually safety and efficacy data to support consensus medicine, right? So that's like the phrase right. that Cochrane group came up with around like what happens when the science doesn't support it, but we're doing it anyway. And lots of doctors are doing it anyway. And so, you know, what I learned through Robert Whitaker's work and the category you were talking about psychotropics, right? Which is like all of the psych meds is that we have ever escalating rates of so-called mental illness and associated disability. Mm. So why is that paired with ever escalating rates of prescription? In, in all age groups, right, right, really, down right, to toddlers, right. right? So shouldn't there be an inverse relationship? Shouldn't there be more prescribing and less disability? And if not, then why not? And essentially, he goes through a lot of literature that I was never exposed to in my training uh, that is non-industry funded literature. And he makes the case that it's actually the medications themselves mm. that are driving, you know, chronic recidivistic illness that are driving the phenomenon that we see, you know, worldwide, which is that people are not well, even when they are treated and maybe actually they're even worse off. And that was his ultimate conclusion is that these medications are driving Mm. uh, that which they purport to resolve. And so, you know, when I first started to look into this, I was, I wasn't the first one, you know, there were people like Peter Bregan before me and uh, David Healy and Joanna Moncrief and Irving Kirsch, and they've written books and they were whistleblowing on this industry, on the guild of psychiatry and saying, listen, um, there is more to the story here. And these meds are not effective and they're not effective for the reasons that we're told they are when they are right. Subjectively. Right. And they're way more dangerous than anyone is being consented around because the physicians themselves who are writing the scripts don't know you can't provide a consent to a patient when you yourself are not aware of suppressed and locked in a file drawer uh, literature that implicates and indicts the medications um, and their and their safety, right? So, I, based on their research, started to look into um, what is called the monoamine hypothesis, which is this chemical imbalance theory. And what I love about science and scientism, the religion of science, is that they're the linguistics are very powerful, right? Like it's always called a theory, right? Germ theory. You know, it's always called the hypothesis. Nobody said it's the chemical imbalance conclusion, right? Like it's called the monoamine hypothesis. And so many decades before I started to look on PubMed about this, there was scientific literature coining this phrase called the cytokine hypothesis, which is what you're referring to, which is the inflammatory model on so-called mental illness and specifically depression. There's the most literature on that. And the only reason this is interesting uh, is that it recruits an understanding of complexity, Mm. right? So this theory, unlike the buttons and levers tinkering because something is low and it should be high theory of serotonin deficiency, let's say, this theory is embraces the interconnectedness of these different systems, the relationship between the gut, hormonal systems, the brain and nervous system, and suggests 
that there is a wise, these are my words, but a wise response underway that we are calling a pathology. And this adaptation is a meaningful and purposeful adaptation to a stimulus, which could be a toxicant in your environment. It could also be a pattern of thought. And, you know, over the years, as I've observed, you know, my, my patients come off these meds and I've began to begun to sort of like develop my own perspective on what human suffering really is about and behavioral and cognitive changes and whatever you want to call these things. I've come to the perspective that it all starts with mentation, right? So it starts with the way you are narrating what's happening. And that choice point, that superpower of human choice is where you can enter to change your story at any point in your life. Yeah. And you're so eloquent in how you in how you describe this, which is to me, it's it's not even confronting to what I learned in school. It's more of a further elaboration of it. It's sort of like yes and in improv class, right? On the other hand, you've pointed out in your book, if this hypothesis is wrong, right? The monoamine hypothesis, what is there to lose by continuing to use these? Well, you then go on to clarify that like, it's time for us to actually put the brakes on this to take a step back and to change direction. Yet many people in our field are so married. It's almost like they've doubled or tripled down on something. And in my work as an OBGYN, I mean, this is like rampant, right? Like they, yeah. people just can't identify that perhaps we're doing this wrong, guys. It's okay to admit that we made a mistake. But through cognitive dissonance, people have a hard time putting on the brakes within the, within the, quote, Western medical model, which, by the way, there's really nothing Western about it. I feel like it's almost like this tendency to just become so married to a concept that if some other information comes in that, that confronts that, it's just too painful. So, so why is it that more allopathic doctors can't just get around this? Have they just, they've just doubled or tripled down and now they're too invested? Like, it doesn't work. So why are we still doing it? Well, it's not even really a, an appropriate question because the implication is that these are just free thinking agents who are doing a job and showing up to you know serve humanity. And, and I don't actually think that's what's going on. I mean, my yeah. perspective is that there is occultism and you know um, specific unconsented agreements um, in the hierarchical structures of the allopathic system, and that's why. There is, you know, a lot of trauma-based mind control, I think, uh, built into the system. The people who are attracted to becoming physicians themselves have very specific traumas, right? Like I will tell you, I became a psychiatrist and uh, specifically a reproductive psychiatrist. So I specifically specialized in medicating pregnant and breastfeeding women because I learned in college when I worked at a suicide hotline at, at MIT, where that was a prevalent issue, it probably still is that I cannot tolerate human distress, Mm. zero tolerance, Mm. like literally 30 seconds of tolerance in my own nervous system Mm. before I have to fix it, do something about it, or make that person's distress go away. So that is why I became a doctor because I can't handle other people's problems, right? right. Not because I'm like some like, you know, good person in it. Yes, I am also a good person. We're all good people, right? So the motivation, however, to identify in the rescue arm of you know the, the victim triangle was to mitigate the sensation that arises within me when somebody else is hurting, 
Mm. My, my empathic attunement, and I'm not a special kind of empath or like some spiritual, whatever, empathy and empathic defenses is a trauma response, right? So you learn to attune, you learn to study, you learn to resonate with so that you can read and strategize and better get your needs met in a dangerous world, right? So like my empathic attunement was such that when I would feel this so-called negative feeling that I had had no training as a child, no support, no, no conditioning around tolerating, it was, it was impossible for me to, to live in the world without a tool set, without a fix it, you know, without an escape hatch. And so if I became a doctor for that reason, then I am aligned with this system based on my woundology, based on my specific trauma responses. And I'm not saying it was designed this way necessarily. Um, However, the system itself is predicated on my capture, right? Mm -hmm. On my unconscious relationship to an authority-based system that is going to keep me safe. How is it going to keep me safe? Because I'm going to stay in line, right? And I'm going to adhere to the dogma. That is the word for what you described is dogma. When, When something is impervious to you know, challenge, it's impervious to any sort of scrutiny or interrogation, just because that's called dogma. And when that is protected by a guild of people who are built into a pyramidal structure, that's called a cult, right? So like, when you're punished for questioning it, you know, early in my career, I was kicked off of two faculty positions, because I simply started to lecture about inflammatory models of depression. Imagine, imagine now if I still cared about that, I would be in in big trouble. Um, However, the model itself is built so that you are punished if you move beyond the pale, it's called, right? Like if you somehow distinguish yourself as an individual, you individuate in some way from the system in a way that is not acceptable or that threatens the system, you will be punished and you Mm. will no longer be offered the safety that was conferred upon your, you know, like, I don't know, inauguration into this, <laughs> this space, right? Yeah, so yeah. I think there's a lot to it. I really look through the lens of, of trauma-based defenses pretty much around all of our decisions and all of the ways that we navigate. And I don't think doctors are in any way exempt. And I think that they're very much an example of how we valorize and, and otherwise turn you know away from the possibility that doctors needs are being met by their own choices. Right. So there's no, I don't believe there's such a thing as, as altruism um, because I think we are built to meet our own needs and we're going to do it directly or, or indirectly. So no, there is no reason that anybody within the system would be questioning unless they're ready to go on their hero's journey, right. Of individuation and self-reclamation because (laughs) not everybody's signing up for that. Right. That's not in the cards for everyone. And, and there's a lot of need, need meeting, in the system as it is, right? You get to be seen as the one who helps. You get to be seen as the one who knows. You get to be experienced as relieving pain, not only for others, but for yourself. And and that is great. That works until it doesn't, right? Until it starts to rumble. And there's, like you said, cognitive dissonance. And that started for me when I myself was going to become a patient in the system. Pregnancy. And And I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm um, not really interested in this submissive yeah. position, right? I'll, I'll be the dom, but I don't want to be the sub. Yeah. So I'm not ready to sign up for that. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, God, you, you said so much there. We have like eight hours to record, right? Is that is that what you told me? <laughs> 
we might end up having to do a part two because there's a lot that I, I want to dig into that. But I mean, I, I think you, you captured, I think, pretty clearly why a lot of people, they are not doctors, the, you know, the people that we're hoping to serve, they reach out and they, they send me these comments all the time because I speak out about hormonal contraception and whatnot. And they're like, why can't more doctors be like you and, and this and that? And I also get what you're saying intrinsically. I just don't know if, under, if people understand just how hardwired people are when they get into this field that to question something like, I mean, you talked about intervention, not being able to sit with people's pain. In birth, that means intervening every step of the way to, yes. to have some illusion of control over the sacred process, the unfolding of birth, the transformation of spirit that is birth. So we intervene every step of the way, create problems, solve those problems, and then call ourselves heroes. In the end of life, yeah. not, not only are we not willing to allow a person, allow a person to die, I mean, listen to that crazy language, until we've tried everything. It might cost a billion dollars, but we're going to keep every last heartbeat, you know, precious, you know, until we can't keep you on, con you know, continuous dialysis any longer and your body's falling apart. In hospice, when I, I got fired for taking my mask off, caring for a dying man, but I'll, I'll tell you that story later, but doing what's right for the person is not equitable to taking away their pain. If you ask any Buddhist who's at the, at the end of their life, you know, a person who's grown up with the Buddhist traditions, being connected to that pain at the very end of life is actually an important part of your journey. And I had this, I tell this story all the time, but in fellowship, I went down to the ICU and they were like, she won't take pain medicines. And the family was like, don't give her the, the morphine. It disconnects her from her suffering. And that's an important part of her work. Like this is important. It goes way beyond the Cartesian reductive model of working organs that are all packed away in your meat suit. And as long as one of them's working okay, then we can still call that life. It's way more complicated than that. But to not, but to be able to sit with a person who's in pain and hold them and hold space for that in birth, in death, or anything in between, that is something that we are simply not comfortable doing. We've never been incentivized to do that. Purdue Pharma didn't help us by making pain as another vital sign that we now have to treat based on a smiley face or a frowny face, you know? But anyways. Exactly. <laughs> but no, it's such an important conversation. I just was speaking to a dear friend of mine who was about to um, euthanize her, her dog, right? Yeah. And this, this dog is like a best friend to her companion and is you know, at the end of life. Right. And it's so reflexive that she would just do that. Right. Right. She sees that, that the dog is, you know, struggling, suffering and pain and on the way out. So she's going to offer this intervention as a point of caretaking and, you know, support. And I said, listen, I have never, you know, uh, euthanized a, a pet, so I don't have direct experience. Um, however, I have a girlfriend who has watched and caretaken and midwiped, if you want, yeah. two of her dogs into their transition and through it, right? So I, I have seen, you know, that this is possible. And, and my rallying cry for many years now is know what's possible. Mm. Once you know what is possible, you make the informed consent decision, right? If you don't know what's possible, you're living in a, a, a contracted reality, right? So now that I know it's possible that, oh, you can attend to the process of an animal's passing consciously, intentionally, I wanted my other friend to know this is possible and to consider the, the you know, potential framework, which is that she is the one who is struggling with her animal's pain. Mm. So she's going to murder her dog because let's just call it what it is. 
right? Because that dog is not asking for it, right? She's going to murder her dog so that she doesn't have to feel the pain of her dog's pain. Do we have any idea, right? I'm not an animal communicator. Maybe there are people who have an idea. Do we have any idea what that pain is contextualized by? Do we have any sense of how it is actually experienced without projection Mm. from our human perspective and moreover, our intolerance for pain? What if that is an essential part of the alchemy of that liminal space that this animal enters before it transitions out of the of, of physical form? Like, who do we think we are at a certain point, right? Yeah. And that's only relevant when we're imposing something on another, right? You do you. If that makes sense to you, you want to take, you know, you want to euthanize yourself, like whatever, do I, I'm a libertarian, have been from the beginning, right? So like, do what makes sense to you. However, when we are imposing, moralizing, and, you know, valorizing certain, you know, medical interventions and certain paths and certain approaches to human struggle and suffering, and then codifying that as if we all are expected to conform to the same prioritization, right? And this came up obviously so much in the past couple of years, right? Like, how are you so sure that we have the same priorities, like that, that we both think that death is the worst thing that could possibly happen? Maybe I think restriction of freedom is the worst thing that could possibly happen, right? Like we have different priorities and therefore we don't, we're not consenting to the same reality around how to manage those priorities in the collective and for each other, right? Like for me to put a mask on for grandma violates my priority system and my values, right? And we are not sharing the same hierarchy of needs necessarily until we talk about it and we establish that we are. So there's so much depth in these, these simple questions about, you know, um, what are we doing exactly? Yeah. And, and why are we doing it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is at the, at the crux of this is why a birth plan makes sense on a very no shit level. Yet in the system, it's treated as like, you would never hand a, a birth, you know, a plan, a flight plan to the pilot and say, this is how you're going to fly the plane. It's like, that's not the point of a birth plan. A point of a birth plan is for us to start understanding you, to build rapport. Like, what does building rapport mean? It means I can love you. I can hold space for you if I know what your values are, what's important to you. And if pain is less important than having freedom of mobility, then why am I zonking you out with morphine at an end of life? Or for that matter, putting an epi- you know, recommending you get an epidural because you look like you're in pain when you're, when you're having a, a hospital-based birth. I mean, we could, we could go down that, that stretch you know, uh, so deeply because all doctors are faced with this every single day. And whether it's their hospital policies or it's their insurance company or it's some, I don't know, ridiculous patient satisfaction survey or something like that, these policies are then put into place that if you if you buck that policy and you do something for this person because it's important for that 95-year-old guy who hasn't seen a face or had any human touch for 18 months to die with some dignity and compassion knowing that there's another guy here who's rubbing lotion on his skin and then for that doctor me to be fired the next day cuz I I broke the policy even though I was doing what I knew this guy needed and craved that's where I think you and I and, and every other doctor who has to be confronted with the reality of allopathy as it's practiced within this conventional, overly scripted, institutionalized thing, this monster, we step out and we're like, I'm going to do things differently. We're going to form private associations. We're going to have a private contract between me and my client or me and, me and you, Kelly. And whatever comes to be, comes to be because we are going through this together. It's that shoulder to shoulder versus 
head-to-head kind of feeling. And I love this most about your work because I, I think the world is desperately in need of somebody who understands the psychiatry you know, of the contemporary conventional model and is able to say, yes, and what about all these other things? And you know, perhaps we shouldn't talk about the pandemic because I know you and I see very, very eye-to-eye, but if nothing else could demonstrate it for anybody, if you didn't see something wrong with over the past, within the past couple years of how this medical establishment has tried its best to control something, and yet we're still left actually in a worse place than we started. We're more disconnected. Our kids are all underdeveloped because they haven't seen faces for a while. Old people are dying in nursing facilities without any human connection. If that doesn't sound bad to you, then obviously there's a metric, a bunch of metrics that we're missing. And now is the time for us to pivot and to start individualizing this and can, reconnecting with the people that we, that we hope to serve. Well, so there's so much to unpack here. And I'll, yeah. I'll just begin you know, by saying that it's not true for me that things are worse than they've ever been. They're actually more authentically aligned for me and my kids than they've ever been in my entire life. Why? Because the collective process uh, that we have undergone, and trust me, uh, if you followed anything I had to say at the beginning of all this, I struggled for sure with fighting the reality that was before me, right? But the collective process and associated invitation has been, according to me, you know, this is what reality is. This is what's on offer here. You have seen and known this for some time now. Do you want it? or not? Mm. Because if the answer is no, then go. Yeah. What does go mean? It means meet your needs some other way and stop insisting that what you think should be on offer here, how you think palliative care should be run, how you think babies should be born, how you think depression and psychosis and mania or whatever should be interacted with. Stop insisting that it be different. Yeah. It ain't. This is how it is. And exactly it's like that right. Bucky Fuller quote, right? Like, don't fight the existing system. Go make your own that renders it obsolete. And that invitation to recognize that we are, you know, as I've said in a million interviews, that we are buying, trying to buy eggs from the hardware store. <laughs> it's home big time in my life, right? Because not only was, you know, that wasn't true for me. I had already emancipated from the medical system. I didn't, I don't have a relationship to the medical system. It's not even relevant in my life. Right. So I'm not insisting that it be different anymore uh, because me and my peeps know how to be without the system. Right. However, there were so many other dimensions, the financial system, the legal system, education, you know, agricultural system that I had not done this work of acknowledging that what I want perhaps is not available here. It's not on offer. So what are you going to do now? Right. What are you going to do instead? And I certainly hadn't done that work in my primary relationship, you know, uh, which, you know, ended in, in, in divorce, because once I finally recognized in so many relationships and in so many different arenas of my life, what I'm insisting be on offer here simply isn't, And I'm going to have to look at this choice point and say, either I'm going to continue to suffer in this model without my needs being met, or I'm going to courageously walk into the wild unknown and see what's out there and trust Mm. that my intuition is going to lead. It's going to put a stone under each footstep every single time, because that has always happened. And it's happened for all of us, or we wouldn't be here having this conversation. Yeah, yeah. 
to recognize that our journey is meaningful and that you are reflected that which you're ready to explore. And if you're not ready to explore it, that is totally fine. It'll come back around again, right? Because I look at so many of those choice points that honestly, I was like, nope, not ready to have that conversation with my family member. Nope, not ready to walk away from the system. Nope, still living in New York, right? Nope, you know, this this relationship, it's got to be the one, right? And when I was ready, it's it's this like elusive, why? Why was I ready when I was ready? I don't know. I don't know. However, it can't be inspired. It can't be coerced. Nobody could have come to me and said, hey, you know, you should really think about this. No. And that's the nature of any addiction, right? Any habitual reliance on sourcing from a limited, you know, um, well, (laughs) all the water you need to drink, right? Is that it works. It kind of works until it doesn't, right? Like until it doesn't. And that moment of when it doesn't work is that, you know, what's in, in psychology called the rupture of empathy. It's the moment where you recognize this is not going to do what I need it to do. And that cognitive dissonance develops where you're holding these two realities of, but I want it to, and it should, and it, it has to, and mm, it's not, it's just not, it's yeah. not personal. And it just isn't yeah. right. And you have this, this moment where you can say, all right, I'm out. And that's mm-hmm. why I've observed that every time there is an up-leveling, in uh, expansion, uh, personal expansion, there is a loss of something that you thought you would die without, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's your medical license or your private practice or a friendship or a relationship or a home or a dynamic with your mom or whatever it is, there is a loss and a relinquishing of hope that you will ever source what you insisted would come from this place from that place. Mm-hmm. And when you give up the hope, it magically comes from somewhere else. That's the crazy thing, right? When you truly give up hope and you say like, I don't need anything from here anymore, actually. And you get to be free and expressing yourself, right? However that looks because you don't need anything anymore. And you're not afraid of, you know, being punished or being left out in the cold or losing that thing. Then it comes the very thing you were wanting from that that place comes from somewhere else. Yeah. I've seen this hundreds of times, yeah. you know, with my, with my patients going through, you know, these dark nights of the soul. And so there's, there's a lot here and, and the system itself, enjoy it. Right. right. Like yeah. I had, uh, I have um, adopted animals, right. And I have a cat who is very traumatized, bless his heart. And when I God, there's all sorts of spiritual significance to whatever he was processing through his body, but however, he was neutered right before I, adopted him. And I, it's my belief that that is a very problematic medical intervention, especially when it is applied and imposed, um, when these kitties are like very, very young. Right. So he was very young when this was done, he developed urinary occlusion. Right. And, and, you know, I know about raising humans. I don't know much about raising animals. Right. So like, this is, I'm two years into having, you know, chickens and cats and all the things. And I watched him nearly died, right? It looked to me by all I could observe that he was transitioning, right? He was like immobile. He was uremic and all that, you know, that's what happens when you don't pee for days. Right. And I, of course, like, you know, was aware of all the fear mongering on the internet that this is like how male cats often die. Right. This cat is like a deity to me. Right. And I was unwilling to allow that. 
I was unwilling. I was yeah. unavailable for that outcome, right? And I was also not connected to a faith because I did not know what was possible. I didn't have a friend who say, hey, here's what you can do. You know, and of course I tried homeopathy and, and cold laser and other things, but I didn't have a friend who said, hey, sometimes it looks like that. And you know what? It could go differently. So I was self-hexed around mm. the fact that this is what's going to happen. He's going to die. So I brought him to the veterinary emergency room. My kids have never been to a doctor or an emergency room, right? But with my cat, here I am because of all of the fear that I had. And I was in the parking lot hysterically crying, right? And I like snapped myself out of it. And I said, Kelly, you have a choice, right? Because whenever we are in the have to realm, we're in our victim consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? So if I have to bring my cat to the emergency room because he's going to die otherwise, it will be most empowering for me in that moment to recognize, no, actually, I don't have to. I have many choices and I am making this choice. This is a conscious and deliberate choice to engage the allopathic veterinary system. And it is my choice. So if I don't like how it be, then too bad <laughs> for me. Leave. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I'm making the choice to engage and I'm not going to insist, although I did try to bring him his like raw organic food. And that was, <laughs> it didn't really work because it wasn't anything. It didn't matter. But I, you know, it's not for me to insist that they do animal care my way, whatever that means. Right. right? And it was just such a humbling example of, of how, when we relinquish that awareness and connection to our power of choice, we slip into victimhood and then there's a villain, yeah. right? Whenever there's a victim, there's the villain. And so the villain becomes the system, the parentified entity like the bad mommy or bad daddy that you're insisting should be different. And this system, this hierarchical system does not recognize individuality, right? Right. Right. There is no role for the individual in a hierarchical system like the allopathic system. So how you wanted to interact with that patient, honestly, that patient, you wanted to be seen as an individual with very particular needs that were divergent from conformist expectations around what is happening, what is code, what is gold standard here. Mm. And there's not room in that system for individualized care, for individualized attention. Why? Because the individual threatens this kind of a power-based structure. So everyone has to be stripped of their individuality. That's why it's the hepatitis C case in room 104, right? It's not, uh, you know, Sam Smith, who has lived a life that makes a lot of sense out of this being the way his body is expressing what he's not otherwise conscious of, you know, or however you want to look at. Yeah. I mean, geez. Well, just to clarify, uh, the past, these past three years have been the richest, most incredible years of my life. You know, with all the world apparently burning down around me, my family has been, yes, I lost two jobs and my first two jobs out of fellowship. I lost it and then I lost it. And it was for me doing what I thought was best for the patient and getting to know them on a very, very deep level. And then deciding that I have a choice. Like you said, I have a choice to do it this way, the way they want me to, or I'm going to, I'm going to choose to do it this way. And there is incredible liberation and dare I say just like my mental health benefited from those choices alone not to mention the fact that oh wow I don't have to choose to do this I don't have to choose to do this I actually can decide to do what I want to do right now and something I've been bringing up to people at our dinner parties and whatnot recently is has been imagine how incredible your life would be if you just realized you can say no 
And there was a woman who came into labor and delivery triage once, and she'd had like seven kids with the, within this hospital. I was at Kaiser in LA, so it's the most system of systems. She was like getting monitored. I guess she was like having belly pain or whatever. So it was her like seventh baby. And they all knew her because they were like, oh, she's back. Here she is pregnant again. And she just decided at some point, like, I'm going to go get something to eat. And she took all the monitors off and walked out. And they looked at me like, she can't just leave. And I remember sitting with it and just watching it and admiring her and being like, fuck yeah, she can leave. Like, she's nobody's, like, we're, she's not a concubine. She's not a prisoner here. <laughs> <laughs> she can take the monitors off and just walk out. There's no, you don't have to sign against medical advice. Just leave. Period. It's done. You know, these little things that, that you know, these, these kind of funny little uh, allegories, they may seem silly to people, but when you, when you understand that if you're not feeling well, or, I mean, literally anything you ever go to a doctor for, you can make a choice right now to either understand yourself a little bit better, figure out what in your environment has actually contributed to this, or you can sacrifice that freedom and you can get somebody to give you a pill or to do surgery so that you can, quote, feel better, just like for your cat. And you have an option there to really, really dig deep and to, fig and, and to listen to the pain teacher who keeps coming back over and over and over again. You can listen to that, you can digest it, you can find somebody like you or me, and we will actually go do some deep exploration. And you might even tell me to fuck off in the middle of that. That's kind of part of the exercise anyways. But, you know, I think it's very confronting when you ask a person, can you imagine what your life would be like if you just exercised your freedom? And even that question is confronting to people where, you know, you're, you have full, the world is your oyster. You have full reign over your whole domain. Why are we going to our religious leaders, our politicians, or our doctors, or our mommy and daddy to fix everything for us? Like, this is your work. This is your journey. So I really, really appreciate what you said. And um, like you, these past three years have actually been a really, really important nudge from the universe for me to also stand in my own truth and to do the things that I know is best for myself, my family, my friends, and, uh, and my clients. I know that your time is limited, Kelly, so I definitely want to ask you a little bit about some specific things related to women's health, if that's okay. First off, I want to give you the opportunity to comment on anything I just said, but uh, I want to talk oh, a little gosh. bit about I mean, women's health. Yeah, it's, I love this conversation, yeah. and, and there's, there's so much here because once you start to, like once you get that first hit of self-initiation, right? Like I made the scary choice yep. to do things differently than I have ever done them. And I did it even though other people, even though there were consequences, let's just say, yeah. once you get that first hit of like, oh, I did the thing, right? <laughs> you, you're washed over with this pride yeah. and it's the experience of becoming your adult consciousness and stepping into sovereignty, it's right? Adulthood. And then yeah. it becomes, yeah, it becomes a way of being where you start to feel that little yes, even if there's an avalanche of no on top of it, like, yes, I should call my brother, right? And even mm. if there's like, no, he should call you. Wow, who cares? It's fine. Whatever, all the no. You you trust that little yes, mm. right? And you continue. Or maybe it's a little no and there's an avalanche of yes, just do it. What does it cost you? Come on, whatever. But there's a little like, hmm beneath. And once you start to build a relationship with that tiny yes and that tiny no called your intuition, it's an entirely different resourcing nexus, right? So you are now resourcing from within rather than deferring without. And when you're deferring to something outside of yourself, you are necessarily in the illusion of 
victimhood, right? And all of those triangles, all the repeated patterns of drama will continue to come into your life so that one day when you're ready and you can hold the feelings and parts of you that are terrified that you might do things differently, you will. Yeah. Right. And so I found, you know, there's something called enmeshment trauma, which is very relevant to a lot of us who were raised to appease our caregivers in order to secure love, approval and attention and affection. Mm. Right. Mm. And so the implication of this kind of a trauma is that you have to share a reality in order to be safe. And so when we first are learning how to say no, sounds so easy, right? Just like stand up for yourself and say no, but defending yourself is not self-love, right? And in fact, I would argue that it's actually self-betrayal to defend yourself, right? So when you are in the mode where you think, unlike that woman, that you have to have a very good reason that somebody else agrees with and approves of in order to dissent, that's actually self-betrayal. And you're going to see that betrayal reflected back to you, right? Because there is like an arc of learning how to say no. And, and, and first it's like, I'm going to say no. And here's my reason. And here are my reference, hundreds of references for saying the reason I should be able to say no. All right. And, and do you get it? Okay. And then, you know, you get to a phase where that patterning is so draining and so exhausting that finally you say the Royal fuck. No, like mm. you, you, you just have a moment in your life where you're like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm out. Right. And that is an advanced stage, right? Because there's a, 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 a level of not caring, right? About the maintenance of the dynamic that is essential there. And that's important. It's a little bit of giving up hope or a lot. And then the ultimate sovereign expression of the no is this phrase I love that has changed my life to know this phrase, which is, it doesn't work for me. Mm. The end. Done. The end. <laughs> Done. Right. Because then I say, you have your reality. I'm going to have mine totally down to communicate uh, about this difference. It's not really necessary because I'm not taking the invitation. I'm not meeting the expectation. I'm not participating and consenting in that, which you would prefer, you know, that I do. I am simply saying no. Mm. And that is self-love, right? When you don't need to leave the post of your heart in order to defend and coerce and strategize and manipulate where you simply stay in allegiance to yourself, knowing that you got you, knowing that you can trust what is right for you, even if people don't like it, even if there are consequences, no matter what you're sticking with you. And that, I mean, there, I could count on one hand, how many moments in my life I've actually lived that way. However, I know that that is the resolution ultimately of this enmeshment trauma where otherwise I am. I mean, when, if I'm sitting with my daughter and I get up to go pee, I don't just get up to go pee. Like if we're just like lazing around on a Saturday, I will say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Why? Why does she need an up moment by moment update on what the hell I'm doing with my body? Why? Because I need her to share reality and caretake her experience of reality. What if she gets upset that I just got up? What if she thinks that I'm rude or mean or cold or whatever? What if she thinks I'm a bad mom? So I'm going to caretake her reality and make sure that we are sharing a perspective. It's okay. I have a reason to get up. Here's why I'm getting up. Can you be okay with that? Like it's just in every little micro moment. Yeah. Yeah that we self-abandon in this way. And when we start to become aware of it, our relationship to consent 
and our relationship to, you know, uh, choices really changes because we see that we, we retain that power, no matter what Mm -hmm. we have choices, everything's okay. Yeah. And if somebody gets upset, they, you know, we're going to respect them enough to let them handle it and ask for what they need rather than assuming that we are the caretakers of others reality. Yeah. Something that came to mind is something I, I preach on and on and on about, but a lot of people are like, you know, if I didn't have a baby in the hospital, my ba- I would have died and my baby would have died and all this, you know, this kind of type of stuff. Might be true. <laughs> in reality, maybe. Right? Yeah, maybe. And there are a ton of women who are having completely natural physiologic hands-off births in hospitals that still feel like something was wrong and they don't have the language to really describe that. So people are like, what's wrong with hospital births? Why are you telling people to have home births? And I'm like, listen, just, just hear me out here. If you go into a hospital, you are seeking safety. You're, you're, you're seeking a location that has been, um, that caters to people like you who want to have babies. They purport safety. They purport resources and operating rooms and all this other stuff. You go there. You've now consented to being in this system, you're going to have a baby there. Somebody like me walks out, they stick their hand in your vagina without even asking permission, um, or maybe even maybe even introducing themselves. Um, the nurse is talking to you, but looking at the computer. Um, the bed's uncomfortable. There is so much implied consent with having a birth in the hospital that even if we get, quote, healthy mom, healthy baby, which I wish people would just stop saying altogether, Later, six months later, you might feel like something just wasn't right about that. And I don't know what it was, but then they end up coming to me, telling me these stories and saying like, I just don't feel like I'd be very comfortable having a baby there again. What you're describing is exactly why. And that's because they didn't have, they didn't go in with holding consent as the sacred sort of experience that it is, but they, throughout the the experience there. We're not being spoken to. We're not being touched. We're not being um, treated as a whole person. They were actually just falling into the assembly line of healthy mom, healthy baby being the only outcome. On the other hand, what about the immeasurable aspects of having a baby? What about having a baby in your bedroom surrounded by all of your, the people that you want there with amber lights and not the distractions? And you can actually go inward and, and work through this process. Those are two very contrasting experiences, and it's not my job to say it's, okay, it's best to have a home birth, although I will say that most women who have a home birth, that's their first experience in being in their own sovereignty, and that changes everything. They become a completely new person afterwards, and I think you're putting a lot of really great language to help people understand the power of choosing for yourself every step of the way what happens to and for you, but also for your baby in the in the the one microcosm of of birth. I think it's beautiful the way that you describe that. I'm so glad this is on my podcast. Take that every other OBGYN podcast. <laughs> no, I mean this is uh, this topic is so important in fact. Um in 2016 I experienced uh a wave of constructive feedback, okay? Um and including like aerial shots of my like home with death threats and like the whole thing and it was kicked off by a blog that I wrote about home birth. A blog that I wrote about home birth and I had been, you know, I just put out a book with an exploding pill on the cover, so I was interested in why this was yeah. what tipped the scales. Yeah. If if you look at it that way. Yeah. And it didn't take me long to, to recognize that if you want to control a population, you 
commandeer their rituals of initiation and you focus their attention and energy on productivity outcomes and measurable metrics of their externalized self-worth mm. and that is done through the medicalization of the birth process mm. right mm -hmm. alan watts talks about how you know you don't listen to a song to get to the end of it right and if healthy baby and a living mother is the only aspect of a birth experience that matters you have missed the song right it, and yeah. you miss the song because our dominant culture does not understand the value in moving through these spaces of self-initiation confronting the limiting beliefs and self-perceptions and self-concepts that would have you think that you cannot do this that you were not built for this that you were not made mm. to have this experience and would frame what is happening as danger rather than the ne the necessary destruction of all that interferes with your more expanded self-concept with your more expanded experience of your power and with that um that 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 contact mm. with the divine support that is necessary that is required to recruit if you're going to have you know a, a natural birth you're not the only one doing it in fact you're not doing much of anything you're surrendering in the ultimate expression of femininity mm. to be moved by a force that your body was designed to channel literally physiologically designed to channel this divine energy and the surrender that is required is specifically and i would say deliberately interfered with by the medicalization process so that you cannot surrender right so that that is not available to you yeah. so that you recruit your masculine defenses and you stay in the focus right. on the prize right the focus on the outcome the focus on that measurable metric of okay i guess it was fine gaslighting yourself around this traumatic experience that you just participated in bringing to fruition Right. And I am somebody who used to believe that elective C-section was the only responsible thing for a woman to ever secure. Why would you ever experience pain when the bounty <laughs> of allopathic medicine has made it easy for you? What's wrong with you? Who are you trying to prove yourself to? Right. right. Like this right. was literally my mindset. I've lived in both camps because I've had this, you know, rebirth experience. And as you're saying, it began for me with natural birth. That is when it began, when I started to feel like, hold on a minute, <laughs> I felt more powerful here, you know, recruiting none of my defenses, right? Birthing my first daughter, none of my defenses than I ever have in my life. Mm. So there must be a different kind of power. Like I like to call a soft power, a fierce grace that you can tap into as a woman that is simply not available. The conditions are not set and the paradigm the the force field that you enter when you step into a hospital is an indoctrination field just like any field is when you walk right. into a yoga studio you know like when you you know when you join any sort of private community or whatever it is you are entering i mean i'm launching next week my uh vital mind reset right like my my program you you know about it and are supporting that is successful in the ways that it has been, you know, allowing me to publish literal 
medical history making cases that have come through this program. Why? Because the field of belief is thousands strong. Mm. Thousands of people have believed that this program can jailbreak them from their struggle with their health once and for all. Mm. And that's why it works because the field is there. So you want to tap in to miraculous energy, step into the field and do so with, you know, with the, with the sense that there's nothing else for you to do on the planet right now. Like this is it, this is what, where you belong and it will happen Yeah, because the fields of belief are that powerful. And when you're entering into a hospital space, you are being, you know, conditioned around a certain field of, of belief that is not structured to support your self-initiation. Yeah. You know, you said something in your, in your book, uh, that brought this question to mind. How does our culture foster depression? But really, what you're, what you're describing in the, the medicalization of birth, that culture fosters depression, in the way, it, it, which is actually reflected in, in women coming to me who had a hospital birth. Now they want to have a home birth. They have a home birth, and now their depression goes away. But it's not so much that we've corrected the chemical imbalance, or if they're not eating well, which I get everybody on, like, you're basically, your, your whole program is, is what I coach people on. I'm so glad that you've got your program because now I don't have to do that. I can just say, go, go find Kelly Brogan, MD. What you're describing is actually, uh, I, I think if we can shift into our own sovereignty, we actually can step outside and say, thanks, but no thanks, culture of medicine or whatever, fill in the blank. We step into our own sovereignty and we wash out at least that element of what we would call, quote, depression. Um, I want to read the a very very short little thing from my website. This is actually the the sort of vision um, of my my practice at Beloved Holistics. We envision a world in which birthing people are worshipped as the sacred conversion point of the physical, etheric, astral, and other subtle bodies. We envision conception, birth, and death as the natural consequences of love, the creative force of the universe, which is a direct experience with the divine. In this world, we thrive through our co-creation with soil, life, planet, and the cosmos. And there's more, but but that really captures the home birth experience. This is way more, as as you you mentioned, Alan Watts. I'll throw one back at you. If the universe is meaningless, so is the statement that it is so. So if 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 birth is just a matter of healthy mom, healthy baby, and none of that other stuff—joy, ecstasy, pain, suffering, um, rapture—if those things don't matter because we can't measure them, then we're gonna, as I mentioned, you know, a little bit ago. The reason that stuff has gone the way they have in the, is in the, in the pandemic is we continue to throw more and more stuff at a problem. It's just hitting, it's just hitting the wall and not sticking. So why can't we consider that if our maternal and neonatal morbidity and mortality data isn't getting better by throwing more materialistic science at it, then wouldn't it at least, couldn't I conjecture that maybe we need, need to consider that there are other facets of this beautiful process that aren't being considered, aren't being weighed against all these, you know, infection rates and blood loss and all these other things in order for us to remember there, there is a sacred condition upon which our life can unfold. You know, there, there, is, there is something more to this than this Cartesian reductive model. We got, definitely got to talk about your program because I know you only have a few more minutes. Uh, I'll give you a scenario. And then um, I want you to comment on that. And then let's also just talk about the generics, the basics of Vital Mind Reset. It's up on my website already. We're going to push people over there to try to get people signed up. The vast majority of people that I am seeing 
started experiencing depression after they had their baby. It's been called postpartum blues or postpartum depression. And they're started on some of these psychotropic medications that you've, you've, you and I have kind of bucked entirely, I, at least you have entirely from your practice in life. What advice do you have to them? And how could Vital Mind Reset help women who are in this space really kind of recapture, to steal from Jamie Will, recapture the rapture? <laughs> mm, I love that. Yeah. I mean, my, like I mentioned, my uh, specific patient demographic um, by virtue of my fellowship level you know, training was pregnancy, antenatal and postpartum, right? So we, we certainly have that, that in common. And I, you know, interacted pretty much exclusively with women who were in that identity plastic phase of their life where they're kind of like, who am I? And they're shifting archetypes, right? Um, and they're feeling very vulnerable, Oh yeah, uh, vulnerable to their own programming and often very literally to the, the forces around them, judging them, corralling them, expecting of them, and really can enter this like crazy making hall of mirrors around how to secure that sense of being good and right, um, which is coupled with, you know, safety. And if there were one sentence that I would say to any woman who is struggling um, at that phase of life, it's to suggest that what if, you know, there's a question, I guess, what if there was nothing wrong with you? And what if everything about you is right, right now? Hmm. The implication of that is that there is something out of alignment and it's a neutral fact, right? There's something out of alignment here, right? I, I remember doing some anthropological research earlier in my career and finding that it for, um, you know, based on neuroinflammatory modeling for a woman to be alone with a baby, period, just on a walk, mm. let alone caretaking this child. Like I, you know, I practice in Manhattan and it's very common for women to be with their infants or newborns when they're you know, husband or partner went back to work and they are essentially isolated, right? And alone. That is an alarm signal of such epic proportions, yeah. right? Something is wrong. The entire tribe must be dead, right? So let's recruit all of these resources to recalibrate your, you know, maternal biology, you know, to, to align with fight or flight behaviors, right? And so if you just look at it that way and you see how we have normalized a context that is completely at odds with what would support this woman, and we have pathologized the woman, mm. then reclamation looks a little different, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Than mm -hmm. taking a pill so you stop feeling the thing, right? Like, you know, do, turning the alarm off so that you pretend that there's no, no fire. And, you know, it's not just even a pill. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know about like Brixanolone um, and, you know, these like more recent yeah. developments where, you know, we are literally like narcotizing. I mean, it's not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. We are narcotizing the most vulnerable women, telling them something is wrong with you. And here's what we're going to take your baby. You're going to spend $50,000 for this. I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy making. It's crazy making until you have that moment where you can say, hold on a minute. It's upside down. It's yeah. entirely inverted. And if I, if there is nothing wrong with me, then what's the invitation herein? That's right. What's the and message? The, yeah. What is the message? Right. And, 
And the invitation is difficult to decode, right? So you might get it, ask yourself that question. You might get an immediate hit. You know, I need more support mm. or I got to quit my job or I, you know, I'm eating the wrong stuff or whatever. The reason that I am an advocate for a certain order of operations, the first month of which is just sort of like following a committed structure of lifestyle change is because once you get clear, right, physiologically, you resolve a lot of the alarm bells that go off when you're eating, living, doing things that are not in alignment for you, then you can start to make contact with that inner compass that says, here's what else you need. Follow this little impulse. Mm. Talk to that person, like change this thing, consider this possibility, right? And these little hits cannot be prescribed. That's why my program's only a month, right? Because then you're, you're sourcing, you are sourcing the rest, every single step of your path. And you are the only person who can prescribe that to yourself. And you will. That's the thing. Like when you reclaim that power of choice, because you start to commit, I'm a big, big believer in the power of commitment and discipline for a limited period of time. When you commit and you choose neurobiologically, you shift out of that helpless, dependent fight or flight That's right. freeze for a lot of us and into the regenerative space of safety. Mm, right. Mm -hmm. And, and that choice reclamation, like, Oh, I changed my food. I feel better, not as bloated, pooping regularly, hair's not falling out, joints not hurting. I did that, right? When you reclaim that choice, all sorts of, like a whole pharmacopoeia of healing comes online. And most importantly, you become the most trustworthy agent of your future path. And that's why some of my patients went on to, you know, pursue homeopathy or energy healing or plant medicine, or, you know, these days I wake up on a given Monday and I'm like, Oh, guess I'm doing this now. Right. And it's <laughs> a little, right. It's like a little, little feeling of like, it's a reclamation of impulse, yeah. right. Because yeah. we've been conditioned out of that relationship to our animal selves. We've been told what you desire, what you feel inclined towards, what you are, are attracted to is wrong. You can't trust it. Right. Yeah. We've been broken. And that reclamation process starts off really small. And I do believe it requires a container. That's what Vital Mind Reset is. It's a safe container for a limited period of time. And then you've got you. You've got you. And you are on your, your magic carpet ride. And you will never again make the assumption that feeling bad means something is wrong. You will always reflexively turn with curiosity towards any feeling of struggle, whether it's insomnia or anxiety or so-called depression or detachment or disconnection. And you will say, there's something here for me. There's a message here for me. There's an invitation here for me. There is uh, a way in which I am sourcing eggs from the hardware store. Okay. I'm going to look at how I might try, you know, try to pivot and, and source elsewhere because my needs are not being met. And the futility in insisting that they be met in this way is resulting in this experience of, you know, you know, what I call depression and I have choice and I have agency and here's how I'm going to do it differently so that I can feel my birthright, which is vitality. Mm.
Well, there you have it. <laughs> Sounds so easy. <laughs> well, 30 days oh, is easy. nice, though. It ain't easy, but the path is well-worn, <laughs> and there are many who have come before, and we got you, right? Like, that's the field. It's like, we're all here. Yeah. And I know that all I ever did for my patients was I gazed upon them with trusting eyes, and I, and I told them, there's nothing wrong with you, and you're doing it. You're doing it. You've got this, right? Like, it is so more than okay. You are going to look back on this. And, and then every time in the future that you ever hit the shit, you're going to be like, oh, where am I going now? Right? Like <laughs> up level coming, right? Like yeah. can't wait to see who I am. And there's an awkward phase of confusion and where you, you, you dissolve like in the chrysalis. Right. And, and I, I'm just getting out of my most recent rebirth canal. Right. And it's super, super disorienting and confusing. And, and that's for a good reason, because your nervous system has to expand in its capacity to hold that much more peace, harmony, joy, happiness. We have coupled most of us, those expansive positivistic states with danger, Mm. right. Contract into the familiar complaining and, and victim patterning of abuse. And we seek it out. We want it. We, are attracted to it, right? Like we marry it, right? And there's a point at which you can hold that liminal space energy enough to be able to move through and pass into the wild unknown of your life. And isn't that what we came here for? To evolve and grow. If you have a little feeling like there's more to my story than this, you know, then there is. Yeah. I want to I want to ask you something about this because I imagine a lot of people who were presented with this type of language. I find it very empowering, but you also know way more about me, you know, with our other work that we're doing on the side and whatnot. I'm very empowered when I, when I talk to people like you. Are there a lot of people who hear this and immediately give you the big middle finger? And why is that? <laughs> and I get it. I so get it. You know, yeah. I get it because I've been that person, right? So, you know, I recently, and I know, first of all, I have to, um, stop talking soon. Cause I got to go take sure, home to sure. and second of all, I, I know that, you know, there's a whole other can of worms. We're not opening up. However, I recently shared like a little video reel, um, of myself, um, with a picture of me as a medical student, right? Like my first headshot. Right. And in it, I was like, I hate high heels and slutty attention seeking women and people who don't contribute to society. And I remember holding those beliefs. And I remember judging women who would like you know, show their cleavage under their white coats or whatever, you know, whatever bothered me about their unprofessionalism or whatever. And that was a projected dynamic Mm -hmm. that I have with the part of me that is ashamed that I might be those things. Right. And moreover, that part of me is gatekeeping, you know, what in parts work is called an exile that is holding a gift. Right. So like, I get what it is to judge and condemn and say, you know, please stop doing this. Insist that somebody or something be different because I have done that. And it's not personal, right? It's a reflection of that fragmented relationship with the part of them that is holding this energy. Because something doesn't bother you unless it bothers you within yourself, right? Because there are people who scroll right past my shit and they're like, oh, whatever. But the people who I get going, the people who I bother, it's because, in my opinion, they have an invitation to relate to that dimension of themselves that they are imagining is embodied by me. Mm. 
for better or for worse, mm-hmm. right? And this is true for idealization too. The people who think I got something that they don't and they're, they're like, oh my God, you're so amazing, blah, blah, blah. That is also a projection, yeah. right? Yeah. Idealization and vilification is play on the outside of that, which you can start to get to know on the inside. So I really don't, I really don't take it personally. And I know that when I talk about victim consciousness, which is just about my favorite topic and, and I every, single, every single day, you know, that the implication is that we have full personal responsibility for our experience. That is not a concept that is consistent with most aspects of our dominant culture. Right. And for good reason, as I've said, it's like, you can say, you know, the system isn't broken. It was built this way. <laughs> There's other fix here, right? Like yeah. this is how it actually was designed. And so I can handle that, right? Like I can handle people feeling like I shame victims and people feeling like I uh, am reckless, dangerous, and irresponsible. Cause I probably thought these things yeah. about, you know, renegade big mouths like me or sure. whatever you want to, you know? And, and so it really isn't, isn't personal. And that play is actually necessary for those individuals to feel safe. The Mm. judgment experience is necessary because we need to be victims until we're ready not to be. We literally need to be. You can't take that away from someone. And that's why a long time, not a long time, several years ago, I recognized that as an activist, for example, like there is zero role for me to bring my information anywhere. And that's why I stopped. Like I remember Rogan invited me to, to come on for a debate. And I got a big mouth and I got a Rolodex of science up in this brain and I ain't afraid, right? I grew up in a debate-oriented family. Like, oh, we, didn't. <laughs> we are just yelling at each other. <laughs> I, I've been honing my skills for a couple decades now. And I made the decision. I am not bringing my information to anybody who does not ask for it. Yeah. I'm sure I violated that on several occasions. However, that is my general aspiration because there is only the dynamic of predator, prey, you know, villain, victim, when you are imposing your reality, imposing your belief system on somebody whose nervous system and associated traumas literally cannot change one iota. They, they are sourcing basic needs from the victim framework. And I am too still all the time. Mm. And the only difference, you know, is that I have an aspiration to, to grow my capacity to hold my own emotions. And, and a practice associated with that. That's the only difference where I can get to a place where somebody can think I am bad and wrong. And I can for 30 seconds, sit with that, really feel it, not dissociate into my head and then start to condition myself around the awareness that it's okay. Yeah. You know, I had, I'll shut up cause I'm the one now extending this, but I had a really interesting experience the other night, right. That'll help people see, uh, I think. Uh, perhaps if they're open, you know, what, what this is about, the power went out on my street. Right. And I have a generator as a good homesteader. Right. And, and naturally, right. Like the, the, the power goes out and within seconds I have not only like my lights and whatever I was doing my internet, but I even have my like hot pink landscape lighting out in the back. Right. Like it's like ridiculously superfluous. And I go outside and I look down the street and it is pitch black, pitch black. And then my house is like a freaking Christmas tree. Right. (laughs) And my first, my first immediately reflexive thought was somebody's going to come rob me. You can't see my, like, if you're just listening, you can't see my face, but I was like, what? Yeah. That doesn't even make any sense. 
that doesn't even, but I felt in danger. Why? Because I have something that the other people around me don't have. And that means that I'm going to be punished for it. So my, my mind just like quickly came up with, oh, somebody's going to come rob me. And it made so little logical, rational sense, yeah. because obviously if they're going to rob anywhere, it's going to be the dark house. And, you know, people can come knock on my door if they need help or whatever. They made so little sense that I could actually see it. Yeah. I could see how expansion, largesse, power, even wealth, whatever that represents, whatever having a generator versus not having one represents is coupled with mortal fear mm. and danger right? That I'm going to be punished and harmed because of having this thing. If you don't know about that level of nervous system coupling, then you don't know why you would stay small, stay sick, stay in the victim role. It is safer there. It's not been coupled with these very dangerous existential level threats, Yeah. right? So if you don't look at it that way, then you're like, Oh, why wouldn't everyone want to be healthy? Why wouldn't everyone want to have all the things? Why wouldn't everyone want to just be in touch with the fact that they are creating their life experience? Well, for good reason, because it's dangerous yeah, <laughs> to them yeah, according yeah, to their conditioning. Yeah. So it's just like such fascinating levels to unpack and really offer ourselves compassion for where the hell we're at. Yeah, yeah. You're at where you're at for very good reason. It is perfect. It's perfect. And the more you can get into a comportment towards it that says, I made it this way. Aren't I funny? <laughs> and when I'm done, when I'm done making it this way, it will change yeah. and I'll get into a new habit of being. Amen. Thank you, Kelly. Wow. Well, I hope people will check out Vital Mind Reset. Um, you're launching it this week. We're going to have this episode up ASAP so that people can hear it and, and go to kellybroganmd.com. Is that right? Where they'll sign up? Awesome. I'll have a, a link on my yeah, website as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, very much gratitude, Kelly. Um, I hope that we're going to be friends for a long time because uh, I could literally it. just sit here and, and like have you shower me with your, it's not even your knowledge. That's not what it is. It's that I, I respect that you've just been able to sit with these things and to continue to two steps forward, one step back. And you're just on a journey. We're all on a journey. We're just all walking one another home. Right. So um, I appreciate the work you've done and thank you so much. Thanks, David. Well, I hope you enjoy that, guys. Kelly's books are called Own Yourself and A Mind of Your Own. They're both excellent. A Mind of Your Own really gets into the science as to how these medications are not only not beneficial, they're also detrimental to so many other body systems. I definitely recommend starting with that one and then going to Own Yourself. Read those books. In the meantime, if you have any interest in working with Kelly Brogan, you can go to belovedholistics.com shop. And you can sign up for her new Vital Mind Reset program this week alone. They're doing a special promotion. So if you want a little bit more information, you click the link through my website and it'll take you over to find a little bit more information. Kelly, Kelly's website is kellybroganmd.com. You can pick up either of her books on the website, on Amazon, wherever. Just get a copy in your hands, read it, and share it with your people. My name is Nathan Riley, MD. I'm the Holistic OBGYN. I can be found at BelovedHolistics.com, same website I directed you to before. I've got a newsletter. I send out a little video every week, and it's a, a great pleasure for me to do that. I share with you what's working for my patients, what's working for me, some snippets, anecdotes, products, whatever it is that I think will be useful to my listenership, um, new episodes, new interviews, new projects, etc. And um, I do work with people one-on-one. -on -one. I, um, I sell consultations in a package format so you can schedule a free discovery call before you take the plunge 
I care for pregnant women, postpartum women, men menopausal women, people struggling with fertility, everywhere in between. We do a lot of the things that Kelly is recommending in her books, which is why she and I are certainly kindred spirits. We came to this rather unorthodox way of looking at things, and um, neither of us are looking back because we know it works. So you can find me there. I also have a collaborator program, docs, midwives, doulas, anybody can work with me as frequently as they need it as a part of my collaborator program. You can go to uh, belovedholistics.com to find more information about any of those services. If you're liking my podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. It helps other people find me, helps get these incredible interviews out to those who need to hear it. In the meantime, much love. I'll see you next time on the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Take care.